Hello and welcome. I'm so grateful you're here. I'm your host, Meg Berryman, and this is the Beyond Being Well podcast. Here at the show, we are passionate about helping you, helping you build deep relationships with yourself, the earth, and others, helping you foster a deep, embodied sense of well being and empowerment, helping you slow down, work sustainably, and consume mindfully and helping you create social change from the inside out. So settle in, get cozy, and let's get straight on with the episode. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. So grateful you're here. We are nearly at 8,000 downloads, which just blows my mind. And it also um, just really reaffirms my passion for having these conversations and seeing those stats today just made me really reflect on how I would love to spend more intentional time cultivating this podcast over the next couple of months um, because it sounds like it is being supportive for you as well as for me so it's a win-win and as always I'm so grateful for you sharing these episodes on your Instagram stories and tagging me and my guests so grateful for all the reviews you leave on iTunes and the ratings. It really, really helps me to keep building the show. Um, I feel like on the cusp of um, a big rebrand, which includes the podcast. So I will let you all know how that goes. Um, and in a second, I'm going to introduce this incredible person that I got to interview this week. Um, and this conversation is essential listening for anyone who is socially conscious, um, just anyone full stop, I think, um, I can't wait to get into it. But before I do that, just a reminder that I'm running a four week immersion in embodied leadership. It's called embodied change maker. It is for anyone who cares about other humans. And we're going to be building an embodied resilience practice. Um, we're going to be exploring what embodied leadership is, We're going to be really talking about how we can sustain our impact in our social change work. And it is a relatively low cost, short um, way of working with me um, before the end of the year. So if you've been waiting for that moment, jump in. There is four trainings and two reflection circles starting on September 3. It's going to be a beautiful opportunity to deepen your understanding of how you can make the change by being the change. And I'm really, really excited about um, my friend Ali is going to be coming in and running the circles with me. And it's something that has been 17 years in the making um, through all my social change work and all my work in the wellness, spirituality, embodiment and somatic places. So... Get on board. You can find the link um, on my Instagram or on Facebook via Humanitics. You can book your place or email me to set up a payment plan. That's totally fine too. So today's guest is the incredible Desiree Attaway and many of you know her work. She um, has decades of experience really creating, leading Um, international multicultural teams through big changes Um, she's a consultant she's a trainer she's a coach she's a speaker all about building resilient equitable and inclusive organizations but also 
building those um, ways of being within ourselves, building our capacity to be inclusive and equitable from within. So on the individual level, she runs a program called Freedom School. I highly recommend it. Um, and she just is a depth of, uh, she has such a depth of wisdom across so many areas um, that are relevant to what you are interested in and are working on. And I know that there is so much wisdom in this conversation that you are going to get out of it. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Desiree. Desiree, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I know um, this call has been rescheduled a couple of times between both of us and I understand that since we first rescheduled it, uh, a lot's happened and you've no doubt been really busy. So I just want to check in and see how you're doing today and, and how, how it is over there because we're down here in Australia. Yeah, yeah. Um, the past seven weeks have been... Um, They've been really interesting and, and really overwhelming all at the same time. So, you know, none of us saw 2020 happening the way that it has turned out with COVID. Um, and then with um, the uprisings. And so unlike Australia and other countries, um, our government has not gotten a handle on COVID. And one thing that has been unveiled here that is pretty clear is the health disparities between um, Black, Indigenous, people of color, and, and white folks. And so who are considered our essential workers, the folks that were keeping our grocery stores opened and um, you know, keeping our lives running, for a lot of black and brown folks and who was mostly impacted in terms of health disparities and who was dying from COVID the most were black and brown people. So, you know, we had that happening when um, some uprisings started um, with the death of George Floyd, um, but that wasn't the first thing, things had been building. And so what happened is, uh, you know, a tender was lit. Um, there have been ongoing protests throughout this country since May um, in cities like Portland, Chicago, um, Detroit, New York. Like every day, there are folks protesting. A lot of them are peaceful, and so you don't hear about it on the news. The majority of them are. But it, this has not stopped um, over the past few weeks. So that happened. I, um, I normally do a summer series around racial equity every summer. And uh, the timing shifted because of COVID. And I ended up doing a free webinar in June instead of in May. And so to give you some perspective, last May when I did the free webinar, I had 2,000 people register, you know, 800 show, which is, you know, totally nothing to scoff at. Um, this year we had 16,000 people register and 5,000 show up with another 3,000 trying to get in. So um, I've never in my 20 plus years of doing this work seen the level of discourse and questioning 
and, and exploring that I've seen happen with um, white folks in this country um, than ever before. And just even having discussions around anti-Blackness, bringing that word into the lexicon um, has made all of this feel very, very different. Mm. Thank you for sharing that. It's, um, you know, I connected with you. I, I was part of the Inclusive Life Accelerator with Nicole Lee a couple of months ago now. And um, even that discussion, it had a different texture, different energy. And um, for us down here in Australia, you know, it's just unveiled more of what we already kind of knew. But for to, to a large extent, we're learning a lot from you folks over there in terms of that embodied activism, in terms of the political and the spiritual, in terms of all of those elements, which um, in this country, even though we know the statistics about maternal mortality, you know, right. we know these yeah. things, right? It's like, it just feels like there's this question around different ways of leading and of being and of doing our activism and um, do you feel that too? Do you feel there's a paradigm shift in oh, how we're yeah. working? Yeah. Hmm. Um, normally, so what, it, what has happened prior to this point, the folks out protesting were usually black and, black and brown folks, hmm. but it has been more white people out protesting than any time in this country's recent history. Um, so I think folks are feeling really activated, right, in ways that they haven't before. Um, I think folks are, um, I think uh, from seeing COVID like unveiled so much for us, and I think for folks who didn't see before, um, they got a chance to see. Um, one of the things in the inclusive life, right, that we talked about was the liberatory consciousness model by Dr. Barbara Love, right, which is awareness, um, awareness, kind of, um, God, I'm, you know, it's been a long day when I'm losing my language, um, analysis, awareness, analysis, action, accountability, and I think folks, you know, this awareness is kind of waking up to, why didn't I see this before, like, or, or not, why didn't I see it before? Why didn't I pay attention before? I had a woman who's a really smart, lovely woman who said to me, you know, when George Floyd was being held down, he was saying, I can't breathe. You know, where's my mom? I, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. And then she said, I just realized that another black man was choked to death too. And it was five years ago. And she's talking about Eric Gardner here, which happened five years ago in New York. And Eric Gardner's last words were, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. And, and I said, yeah, that happened five years ago. And she looked at me with tears in her eyes and she's like, and why didn't I know that? And I said, it was everywhere. And then her question was, why did I choose not to know that? Mm -hmm. You know, and so, yeah, this is our work, right? Our work is to think about that framework, I think, and what are the things we need to wake up to? What are the things that we've been fighting, knowing, and, and believing, and understanding because of our own fear? Like, mm -hmm. 
and I said to her, part of the reason you didn't know because you didn't have to know. Because what would have knowing have done? It would have shaken your whole world, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're not always ready for that. Yeah, uh, and that's privilege, right? Because that's privilege. <clears throat> because when it doesn't have to be a daily thought, because our lives and our livelihoods and our bodies aren't being threatened. Yeah. Then it's easy not to know or to look away. But I, I really want to center this conversation, Desiree. On, I feel like there's there's so little space right now for a lack of congruence between what we're trying to do and the way that we're doing it. But before mm. we get into that, I just really want to, from your perspective, being deep in this work, deep in the communities, what is it, is, what is it that folks are saying are the needs right now? And, mm. I mean, I, I imagine that they probably haven't changed. It's just that more folks are listening. But I would really love to know your perspective of, what communities are saying, black and brown folks yeah. are needing and, you know, what it is that we need to hear as those of us with privilege on this journey. I think community care, right? I think one of the ways that this work has been, um, capital, you know, capitalism will always come in and take over anything you allow it to. This notion of what self-care is, right? Audre Lorde talks about self-care as being when Black women take care of themselves, it is revolutionary. And I think it's in, and that, you know, it has evolved and, you know, especially in like uh, over four or five years ago, like this kind of coaching world, it was all about, you know, hey, take care of yourself, you know, take a bath and spend some time, you know, when really what Audre Lorde and, and, and those um, freedom fighters, those activists were really talking about was community care, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. My self-care don't mean nothing if my community is burning. So it's how do we care for community? And I think for me, that's what I really am seeing communities thinking and, you know, exploring, uh, and, and how do they do it with joy, right? So what does it mean for black and brown groups to say, let's feed each other, let's, what does rest as, as reparations look like for us? How do we um, support each other, especially now with COVID, like, how do we help each other with our kids and schooling and work? Like, How do we balance all that? And I will tell you, communities of color already had those informal systems in place, right? So when you, when uh, research shows that when you're kind of like intersecting some of these identities with class, what it'll tell you is that folks who are considered, you know, poor and poverty, what they value most is other people. And what folks that are considered like owning class what they value most is things, right? This is from research. And the reason that poor folks and folks with lower economic access value people is because, you know, they're going to loan me the $20. They're going to help me, you know, put gas in my car. They're going to get me to work. Like we need each other. And so, you know, I always say, you know, we get free together um, because I mean that, like this work is a collective work. 
it means nothing for me as a black woman to you know get access or power if 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 it's not being shared with others and mm -hmm. i think for me the core piece of that is our understanding of abundance has to change right that we think if there's a limited amount of pie then of course dominant folks want theirs and they and they're not trying to open up and give folks anymore but when we think of of what does it mean to expand our understanding that there is there is more than enough on this beautiful earth for everybody so what does that mean if we think about how do we share differently how do we talk about things differently um, how do we how do we look at success differently um, and and i think that instead of us constricting if we think about expansion, that this, this racial equity work is really about expansion, making room for everybody. Um, I, for me, that's just, it's, it's the way that I look at it. And I think a lot of the communities that I serve and work with look at it. And so how do we, there's more than enough for us to care for each other. I always got enough to feed somebody else, to care for somebody else. There's always enough love for somebody else in this work if we do it. Mm. It's so, there's so much in that that I just adore and I, and just that piece around capitalism, like, you know, thinking about the constitutions of these countries that we live in being built on the backs of a capitalist system yeah. right? and that that being the seed of so much oppression and a continuation of oppression that was already present. And that's, I really see this work as the same. Like I, it's this question of, are we really willing to claim vitality and wellness and abundance and all of these things that we, an individualist capitalist society tells us that we should desire mm -hmm. on the backs of black and brown bodies? Like, are we really, do you really want that? <laughs> yeah. That's right. right, that's where it's going to come from. Who's going to? You know, one of the great pieces that Audre Lorde wrote, and I can't think of the name of it right now, but she um, gave a speech once, you know, at some big university that was talking about, you know, feminism. And and she was like, and she, you know, she said basically to this audience of white feminists, you know, academia, academics is, who is who's at home watching your children so you can be here? Mm -hmm. Right? Black and brown women. Are, are doing all these work so that you can, you know, time is a resource that we don't talk about enough. And especially, I think when we're talking about um, anybody that's not a man, right? So gender non-conforming folks, cis and trans folks, um, that time is a resource. And when we think about folks that had time, what did they do? They found cures to diseases. They wrote like canons. They wrote books. They, you know, they studied, they built, put philosophy in place and <coughs> created ethos and, <coughs> pardon me. And so, but we think about all the research, what it tells us about folks who are non-dominant culture, we will tell you, we don't, we don't, we don't have time for anything but work because that's the way the capitalist system is made so that we are all about production or um, reproduction. And that's where our value comes from. Mm. 
it's it's I really it's almost the words I use them a lot but it's that um it's how regenerative we can be and these things that you're talking to of rest relationship and communities of care and you're not just talking about regenerating um the diversity in our systems or you're not just talking about equity you're talking about regenerating systems at that macro level because they don't work (laughs) they work for so few right so you know i always talk about how do we how do we think about um these systems and I always think there's two games that have to be played. There's an inside game and an outside game, right? So, like, these structures have got to come down. Mm -hmm. But until they come down, there have to be people on the inside agitating who who are like, let's question this. Like, why do certain people get this certification and others don't? Why is this happening, right? They're as well as folks from the outside putting pressure. And so, um, but we got to understand what the system, how the system works as we think about how do we take it down. But one of the ways that white supremacy and patriarchy and, you know, empire works is because we're so busy working, we don't have time to, we can't even envision what's, what a new system looks like. Yeah. And so that's, for me, a real important part is how do we dream together? Because if I don't, I can talk about that. And Lord knows I talk about it all the time because I truly believe we got to burn some stuff down. It got, it has to go. But until I know, until I can envision and see what we want to put in that place, ain't nobody going to tear nothing down. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah, go ahead. It, um, it just, as you're talking, it's like just that the, the irony that, we can't dream because we're so fucking busy and that idea that to dream to be in those right brain states to be in those states requires safety right and then absolutely it's like every single person I talk to on some level knows on an embodied level that this shit isn't working Right, mm-hmm. like, and there are varying degrees of our nervous system states depending on the trauma that we've had to endure and our resilience and our communities and all of that. But on some level, no one is sitting in these systems being like, I'm having a great time. <laughs> no one is doing that. But it's like we can't even access those other states, which is what I think you're alluding to around this pleasure point is like, we've got to have that now. Otherwise, we're just buying into that same system of like, I'm going to be able to get that once I finish my work. Yeah. And, and the work is now. The work mm-hmm. is every day. Mm-hmm. My work as a Black woman is to just live every second of my life in pure, utter joy and ultimate empowerment. Mm-hmm. And not, you know, Tony, who we just came upon the anniversary of Tony Morrison's death. And if any of your listener has never read a Tony Morrison novel, please, please read them. They'll change your life. And when Toni Morrison died last year, I was actually in Seattle teaching a class called the Praxis of Liberation. And I woke up and heard of Toni Morrison's death. And Toni Morrison is one of my top five just greatest teachers. And so I was devastated. I was devastated that I had to go 
<laughs> into this room, right, and, and teach. And I just wanted to cry all day. And so a woman uh, who I knew knew that I was going to be devastated and bought and set up a little altar in the room where we were teaching. It was really beautiful. But I, I said to them that day, the greatest gift I got from Toni Morrison is Toni Morrison taught me to literally never pay attention to the white male gaze. Mm. That I could live my entire existence. I can live a beautiful, rich life as long as I didn't give that gaze credence and power over me and who I am. And it changed everything, right? And so, you know, I navigate these all white male spaces with these senior leaders as I do work, as I do trainings and coaching and leadership coaching. <clears throat> and I really don't care what they think about me or my work. Because I'm not held accountable to them for my work. I'm held accountable to the black, to black women who may be working in their companies. Those who, those are the folks who get to hold me accountable. I have um, chills all up and down my body as you say that Toni Morrison quote because it's like that. Again, the kind of construct that this is all compartmentalized in some way. Like I do my anti-racism work, and then I do my sustainability work, and then I do my you know right. And but I also all do it all on my own because I don't want to get it wrong, and I want to be perfect at it, right? So I can't. So it's not relational in any way, and it's not messy, and it's not you know. I I spend a lot of time in my garden, Desiree, and I. And I look to that for, <laughs> for the secrets of abundance, right? And, and this idea of like what is generative in the garden is those messy margins, the corners, the places where things have gone wild. And yet that is missing, I think, from these conversations around embodied activism. It is still in a way like an individualised process that I will do my liberation work on my own in compartments and never have to enter that zone of uncomfortable conversations, of questioning my belonging. And so that piece around who am I accountable for, it immediately overrides that sense of I have to belong to stay safe because. Oh yeah. Or I have to be liked. Yeah. So I love that you said messy because that's all it is. It is Mm. messy, right? It's because we've never, we've never lived one day without white supremacy or patriarchy or empire. And so as we start to think about what does that look like? Of course it's messy, right? Then it's going to stay messy for a while. And so when I, when I think about, so I, I've, I've created this framework called the Praxis of Liberation, where I think about what are the things we got to do, right? We got to defy these lies that these systems tell us who we are. And then we have to defend our truths, right? Um, we have to... Think about demand transformation, right? So what has recently been happening is in these communities, people are like asking, like, these are the things, these are our ask to the local community. And and I'm like, no, these are the things we're demanding. Mm -hmm. 
These are the things that we deserve to have as a part of what it means to transform these systems. And then we, we have to declare, what are our non-negotiables? What are the things that, Meg, you're like, I will never give this up, period. You know, or, and for me, one of those, one of my non-negotiables is I'm never going to show up um, in my movement work, in, in my equity work, the way that white supremacy shows up. So I always believe in repair. I, I don't believe in throwing people away. I don't believe in this call-out destruction culture. Um, I believe there's always room for growth and learning if people are committed to that process. And so what I'm not going to do is I'm not going to be punitive <coughs> and with, with the way that I'm in community with people. But I am always about how do I be transformational with folks and not transactional. And that is the core to me. And if it means that it takes five years longer to do what I'm trying to do, I'd rather it take five years longer and we model what we're trying to do than us do it in two and destroy each other in the process. Right, and then the other pieces around praxis is we divest, right? We, what are we willing to destroy and dismantle? And sometimes that is just the vision of what I thought my life was gonna be like or who I thought I was supposed to be. And then it's dream. What does victory look like for us? And the question is, what are you willing to build? And who do you need besides you to build it? Because you're right, we don't do these things in isolation. It's like how, you know, in the social change landscape, the glorification of these big macro movements is just helping us to forget that it's in those tiny moments. Like, you know, I love, I love the framework. Um, I can't remember who it was by. It was, it was not the Barbara Love one. It was the other liberation framework that you presented. Oh, this, Bobby Harrell, the Yes, I love that. And what I love about the way you use frameworks is that you use frameworks, but then you say, and then feedback, right? And it's like, yeah. because we're never going to hit a bullseye in our activism or our social change work or whatever, we may, but it's like, then there's still that cycle of feedback. And I, and I think it's the same on the micro level. I don't know, but on the micro level, unless we're actually willing to go out in the world and have relationship where something comes up within us to be tended to, I don't yeah. know how we can ever be liberated, you know, no. unless we're willing to be in the landscape, in the context, engaging with uncomfortable stuff. Yeah. Well, you, you said two things that I like. One is I, I love the question is kind of like, how are you tending to others today? Like how are, who, who needs your tending? I love that. Like, how do we tend to one another? Um, and, the, and, and this is the other thing that research proves over and over again. We only take feedback, action, feedback that we act on from people we trust. Mm. So we got to be in right relationship with each other. Meg, before you come to me and give me that feedback, and then I'm like, 
oh, Meg is definitely Team Desiree. Meg tells me I need to think about these things. I'm going to think about them. Right? We only take feedback that we act on from people that we trust. And you're speaking to something there around like building our capacity, right? Like there's something in there around building our capacity to relate differently, which I think has been going on like under the surface. It's like we've been building our capacity to stay in the conversations, to have conversations, to relate that's why I always talk about, like, in the personal development world, you know, like, what are you going to do with all the tools you have? Like, what are you going to do with them now? Where are you going to put them? What is going to happen to them? Um, so I love that. That's right. That's right. Um, yeah, like, we've got to trust each other enough to dream together. Mm. Right? Adrian Maria Brown says, you know, like we actually got to be close together so that we can ideate together. Mm. And so I love it when um, people tell me, you know, I, you know, don't want my kids to go to kind of like all white schools. I want them to have diversity in their lives. And I'm like, okay, where do you live? And they're like, well, you know, I live like way out here in the country and, you know, the whitest state in the U.S. And I'm like, you made some choices. Right? Like, <clears throat> that's the thing. Every day we get to choose. And are my choices I'm making upholding the system or not? Yes. And I say that to myself every day. Are the choices that I'm making today, <clears throat> are they somehow upholding white supremacy? Uphold, upholding the patriarchy? Or are they about collective care, love, and consideration? Are they about ways that we are rethinking power? And we get to do that every day. Mm -hmm. And it's in my experience it compounds like the more you make those choices the more the muscle builds to make more choice and something I reflected on this week is you know my version of victory is is choice for everyone like more choice and if those of us that have choice are in the illusion that there's no choice then we're all bloody doomed, you know, like I don't That's know. Right. <laughs> like if we can't right. even exercise our choice to create new systems, to, to create regenerative ways, then I don't know how that must feel for those that have had their choices erased or excluded or removed or squashed. Well, I have to tell you, it's horrible. It's horrible to see um, <clears throat> things, you know, systems, ways, behaviors that we know were traditional, that our ancestors, they couldn't do. And then to see like it now being used, being owned, 
um, by, by by white folks, right? And so, right when we think about, you know, making I, I see these communities like which I love, right? Like making using herbs, food, medicine, right? That and just doing that, and I'm I'm really fascinated by it because I'm always like, yeah. You know, like when, when my grandma did, when other people did that, they were told they couldn't do it. My grandma used to be a midwife in rural Alabama. And she birthed every, all the babies in Bullock County for years. <clears throat> Until, you know, the medical system said that granny midwives couldn't do it, even though they had better rates of success with um, maternal maternal rates than a lot of doctors did. But, you know, they didn't have a degree. <clears throat> they didn't have a stamp of certification. And it would have been fine if the state would have said, oh, we can, you know, we're just going to, y'all have been doing this for years. You've got the experience. We're going to, you know, fold you in onto the system. <clears throat> but they use the system to keep them out because a lot of them had, you know, um, not a lot of education. And so they would make them take state tests that they knew they couldn't pass. And so, and, you know, <clears throat> a decade, a decade and a half, there were no black granny midwives left. I think there are probably two or three left in the whole country. They've died out. And, and you see, right, and I love midwifery, but I'm like, that was something that we knew that we had that was a real gift to our community that we had to give up. We had to give up or the state was charging them and would send them to jail. So it's hard to see sometimes. And our, mag our, our magic being used by others. Mm -hmm. And then just reflecting on like, I heard, I heard some maternal and child mortality stats for black uh -huh. mothers and children, you know, in the States. And you're like, we replace that with this? Like what, you know, it's, it's, but but on the flip side of that, those of us engaged in those spaces as community workers, as activists, as yeah. leaders, as you know, um, I think it's I think it's in in my grandmother's hands the quote like the the biggest gift we can give is the gift of a settled system, you know that embodied absolutely. And, and That's I a think, great book. Yeah, it's beautiful, isn't it? And um, I've been sitting with that a lot. Is like if we can't settle ourselves, then we take that into those spaces. And <clears throat> I know you've worked with Habitat. You've worked with lots of NGOs, and that's kind of my background as well in maternal child health. And the number of folks, Desiree, that I would see run into the fire with all their privilege and leave their bodies behind at the front door, you know? Oh God, so many. <laughs> but I'm wondering for you, like, how do you stay settled? How do you 
What's your practice in your body? I, I don't have a saviorism complex. Yeah. <laughs> that helps. Right? Like, <laughs> yeah. no, it is, right? Yeah. I, I, I can't do this by my. I can only do this with community. I can only live with community. Mm-hmm. I, I only survive with community. There's no hero complex, right? So we can't, we, like that our own ego has got to be let out, go of this. Yeah. And that's so hard because, right? Because again, <clears throat> this Western socialization we have, about who gets to who gets to be saved and who gets to be the savior. Mm-hmm. And you know, it is a lot of those folks who come running into the fire have never worked for or had a, a black indigenous person of color as their supervisors or bosses. So when it's time to actually take direction from these people, <clears throat> they really don't know how. I see this happening all the time. But we're like, you know, follow Black leadership, Black women, Black... And then when it's time to do that, <clears throat> it doesn't happen. Everything is questioned. And it is really fascinating to see and that's where we got to do our own internal work, right? Like, you know, do I question everybody the way I question Desiree? Did I question my other white bosses the way I question Desiree? If this leadership looks new and feels different to me, does that make it wrong? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I just would love to keep talking all day, Desiree, but I'm conscious of time and yeah, I just wanted I to... I got to go to bed. You got to go to bed. I go to bed. I just would love to end. Um, I love that. I love the concept of ideation. I just love that word. You know, I fall in love with words and I love that <laughs> word. But, um, but what does victory look like for you? Ooh. Mm. What does victory look like for me? Um, I will not see victory in my lifetime and my children won't see victory in their lifetime and that's okay. Um, It is the seven generations out is why we do this work. And so victory for me (coughs) um, is a place as um, my great, 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 however many great grandchildren are living in a place where um, They don't have to worry about doctors not listening to them when they talk about their pain. They don't have to go into a doctor's office, you know, literally giving them their whole like respectability playbook so that these doctors and nurses actually think that they're worthy enough of of good care. And I had a really uh, colleague of mine go to the doctor last week and said that they literally laid out, oh, this is what I do, like their whole, like, I'm a good, respectable person bio. And they said, and I I wanted them to think well of me so that they would give me better care. So um, victory for me looks like a world where that doesn't happen. 
And it's a world where we don't, anti-Blackness, there's no residual effects or, or even an understanding of what that is and how it manifests. That is a wonderful vision to leave the conversation with. Thank you so much for your time today, Desiree, and I hope you uh, get to bed and have a great sleep. And... I am. I will. Thank you very much. Um, and thank you um, for, you know, the scheduling and the rescheduling to, to get us here. I appreciate it. And um, thank you for doing your work and doing your part of it. Welcome. Um, yes, yeah. we we all got to do it together or it doesn't, it doesn't get done. Indeed. And are you still, um, you accepting enrolling enrollments for Freedom School, right? In yeah. Case folks Freedom School, yeah. In case anyone's interested, there's some open enrollment for Freedom School that's, that's happening. And um, there's some more fall classes that'll be coming out. So folks can jump on my mailing list at theadawaygroup.com to get more information. Beautiful. I will be doing that. Thank you again, Desiree. Thank you, Meg. Y'all take very good care. Be well. Bye.